Assalamu alaikum and uh, bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Welcome to um, our Tuesday session. It's always great to start with a double attack. Um, so we know that it's going to be a great session, inshallah. Um, I was just saying in my introduction um, before, which um, people couldn't hear, um, is that uh, we have a very special guest today, um, one of our family, um, dear family friends from decades ago. Um, we met Elaine like back in the 90s. So she attended our early halakas back in 1996. She's known as longer than anyone here, and so I'm sure she's got amazing stories to share. Um, she is a convert um, of, well, we, we were talking about it before, about 30 years that she started on this journey um, with Islam, and um, it took four years for her to take shahada. And the, the comment that I actually wanted to make um, is, you know, this was, of course, um, at a very um, different time for Muslims, which was before 9-11, before the rise of Islamophobia. Um, but, you know, one of the biggest challenges um, is, aside from, you know, all of the challenges to become a Muslim, you know, in, in this day and age, to convert, and even back then, it was extremely difficult to find your way to um, being Muslim, um, is after becoming Muslim, how do you remain Muslim? And I think it's, we know that there are many people who um, convert and um, become aware of the reality of, um, you know, whether it's the Muslim community or, um, you know, just so many challenges of being Muslim, that it's very easy to leave the faith. Um, and especially the, the convert journey is very lonely, um, as I've spoken about before. Usually you're greeted with all kinds of fanfare, and then after that people kind of don't really know what to do with you and they leave you on your own. So a lot of times it's really dependent on who you happen to connect with, um, whether or not you remain Muslim and what your experience is. Um, I was very fortunate and I mean, I had my year of Wahhabi induction, which was just kind of like, um, you know, a very fast way to shut off your brain and learn that you shouldn't ask questions and that, you know, this Muslim experience is, is oppressive and lonely. Um, and then very shortly after that, I was very fortunate to meet Sheikh and um, take a very different trajectory than most Muslims. Um, Elaine um, was, you know, joined on part of that journey in 1996 and, um, you know, was attending a lot of the early halakhas where we covered some of the early chapters of the Quran and some other issues. Um, we lost touch after a while and then recently reconnected and Elaine has been with us um, through the Project Illumin journey. So it's been really fascinating to sort of share stories and talk about um, you know, how that has impacted her life um, and also like understanding where, um, where we were, you know, 30 years ago or 20, 25 years ago. Um, and it was very interesting because um, one of the things that she shared is that back then, you know, we, we spent time talking about a lot of issues, you know, dogs, um, hijab, just, you know, different things that Muslims were, were concerned about. Um, but not the things that might necessarily carry you through the challenges of life, like the Quran, like what we are covering now. Um, and it seems, I mean, I know from being Muslim 27 years, what you really need to get you through all of the, you know, up, down, back and forth um, challenges of life is a really solid anchor and a moral code and something that you can hang on to and apply in, in whatever comes your way. It's not enough just to say, okay, dogs are allowed or it's okay that you don't have to wear a hijab. These are just, you know, issues um, and, and opinions. But when it comes down to what we're covering, like in Project Illumin, where it matters what is the most just, what is the most beautiful, what is the most, most moral and most ethical, that's where you have the freedom to really 
um, operate and, and find um, something that you can hold on to when things get really rough. So we invited Elaine. I think a lot of people here were very excited to hear whatever story she might have to share. So we invited her to come give the introduction and um, I'm just uh, so excited and happy to hear whatever Elaine wishes to share. She's got, I'm sure, incredible stories. <laughs> so um, just try not to embarrass us. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. But anyway, I'm so honored and, and um, privileged and excited to welcome Elaine um, to share whatever she would like to share. Okay, I'm going to try to encapsulate 50 years of experience <laughs> um, into a very short moment so we don't so we can get to why we're really here. <laughs> um, I'm going to start with the present and then kind of go back to the past. I, I, uh, what I'm most compelled by and why I am here is like Grace said, having that anchor of Islam. And that anchor has to do with, in, in my experience and what's meaningful to me, what is really God's truth and what is his truth about his book and differentiating that from all the falsehood around us. Because my life has told me that, informed me, that so many can claim Islam and but it's just not it's just not enough it's not what compels you to stay a Muslim um, sorry I'm, I'm a little bit lost <laughs> um, so many converts get stuck into what Ustad calls the pietistic affectations, the physical realm. And um, I was actually just sharing with Marwa earlier that I had seen a, an article that the, the, the eye actually only sees 1% of the colors of the world. So if you think about that relative to what you see of Islam in the visible, meaning the clothing and the the, the physical uh, actions that we do, it gives you a perspective of the, the disparity of what's available in the realm of the unseen. And, and that includes things about ethics and justice and morality, which we discuss here so um, um, clearly. So, um, and I don't like the cameras. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so this trying to get at what is true and what is false has been always very meaningful to me and at this age that I am now I understand it's been so important to me because falsehood has had such destructive qualities um, on me personally and has impacted my family and destroyed people's lives, destroyed their stability, destroyed their security, um, their, their sanity. Um, so for me, this being here and experiencing the evolution of his work and how compared to where it was in the 90s and where it is today and what he is providing to us is a 
it's an opportunity to live and it's not an option. It's not something that we can just let go of. Um, and there, I, I have to share this. There's a quote that I love from a, a famous satirist who, actually he was a cleric in Dublin, by the way, Marwa, <laughs> um, Jonathan Swift. He said, um, this had a profound impact with me in a lot of personal things I've been going through where falsehood rules the day, much like we see in politics. And we live in a world where falsehood is, dictates everything. But he said, falsehood flies and the truth comes limping after it. And once this, the tale has been told, the, the jest is over and the story has already had its effect. And so I don't think people realize how damaging falsehood is. And, and that's in every aspect of life. Um, and it does, it, it propagates and it just spreads and it impacts so many people. And it's only later that truth comes out. And you see this, you can pick up any historical example where truth comes at the end. <laughs> but with professors' work in Project Lumen, we have an opportunity to grasp at truth, to find a way to make it relevant in our personal lives. And I just want to iterate how blessed you are to be part of that because I've seen how not having that through my 30-year journey, my 30-year engagement with Islam failed in many ways. Um, and and it, it's interesting that, that I focus on this truth and falsehood because I can remember, I'll try to briefly cover the 50 years. <laughs> um, I remember at a very young age that this idea of what is real was very uh, palpable to me and very important. Um, I was raised on a farm in East Texas, a very unlikely place for Islam to inhabit, and um, an only child. Um, and in, a, in an environment, my, my, my parents were beautiful people, they loved God. Um, and we went to church every Sunday, vacation Bible school. Uh, I was in the bell choir. So, so God was present in my life. But there was this fog, a, a family, dark family secret that pervaded, permeated the space. And, and even though I didn't understand it through my childhood, it was very real for me. And, and caused a lot of anxiety, which propelled me to, to seek God more. So I spent a lot of time outside, just looking at the, the, the clouds and you know, seeing the expanse of the space and realizing that something, there's a cognitive disconnect. Something's not right. I'm not something I'm not getting, something I'm not, um, there's a falsehood at play. I couldn't articulate that at the time, but it was felt physically. Um, so, so that 
when I went to church, it was interesting because I think that that spirit of trying to understand what's real was very present even in church. So I can remember the first time I heard the preacher saying something about the Trinity, and I looked over at the stained glass window of the the the, the white Jesus <laughs> with his sheep, and it's like, no, that's not right. That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> so um, that propelled a you know just a curiosity, I guess. So that by the time I was um, in high school and starting to deal with the challenges of being a high schooler, um, you know, my religion didn't satisfy me and it didn't help me in my, my journey. So I then began to um, explore, I, I tried to, to get deeper into the faith, but the more I learned, the less I liked. I tried different churches as I entered college, going to a literalist, fundamentalist church, Bible church. Um, but in that process, um, it was clear that this, something just wasn't right. Uh, so then I was in, um, had moved to Austin by that time and was in the university in my bachelor's program and uh, met my first Muslim. I had hardly even heard the word Islam. I don't think I'd heard the word Islam until that day. <laughs> um, and that started a, a curious journey of questions and, and that ended up leading leading to meeting more people. Fortunately, at the university, there was a lot of people there uh, internationally. So, um, so, so that, um, but that was interesting, just to touch on what uh, Grace was saying. So this was before Islamophobia, during the Persian Gulf War, and Wahhabism was like at an all-time high, and the rumor going around town was if you become a Muslim and you decide to leave your faith, they're, they're gonna kill you. <laughs> so um, that was a, a quite scary thought. So um, again, I was like, well, I'm not gonna do this unless I know it's true. But if I know it's true, then I can do it. So I began the process of being a Muslim in the physical, you know, the praying and, and the bathroom habits, <laughs> like that was the first thing I was taught, <laughs> um, and the fasting, and, and I was taught to spit every five seconds out of my mouth. <laughs> I mean, so so many ridiculous things that I was taught as an early Muslim. Um, but by the time that I had studied all the history of the Bible and um, with some other converts. Um, I knew this was true. It didn't matter what, what I thought about it, <laughs> but it's true. The message is true, and, and then just let's just, I'm just gonna do this thing. Uh, so I did. But again, um, uh, so I, unfortunately, like a lot of converts, I, I swung because it's a very hard thing to make that decision because you are sacrificing your whole identity and it's very, very painful, and the tendency is to swing in the opposite direction because you're just grasping for something to hold on to. Um, so I, I became impacted by that movement and used to wear, you know, the, the jilbab and everything. Um, 
But over time, that was clearly not my anchor. <laughs> um, and alhamdulillah, at that time, that was when Ustad started his halakas, and um, we started attending those. And like Grace said, they were, they were, for the first time, I started thinking about my faith. And we had the, the lectures on the hijab and the ones on the dogs, and it was very helpful. But when life took us away again, it still wasn't enough to anchor in the path of life with all of its challenges. Um, so, so life continued and more falsehood it, it was part of that process and the road has been very, very bumpy. And not having that anchor is just, it's such, I don't know how to phrase it. Um, you're, you're suffocating. You don't know what to do, and, and you turn to people you shouldn't turn to, and you get influenced by things you shouldn't get influenced by, because you're seeking around the community for help, but nobody understands your pain, or your pain isn't acceptable, or you know, there's too much judgment around it. Um, so this work is critical. <laughs> This work is life-changing and life-altering. If you are open to allow yourself to be vulnerable enough to really seek truth about yourself, about others, about God, and about his book. Oh, that's all. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much, Elaine. Um, you know, it's, um, there are just no words. It's like, um, I think when, when, when we're here and, you know, hear that the impact, I mean, it's, it's like we believe in what we're doing. And, you know, we're kind of like in our own bubble and oftentimes we don't really know how things are impacting people, as I've said, unless we hear from them. Um, and, you know, Elaine is, is one of the most beautiful souls that we know and that, you know, have, um, you know, I just, the, 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 the testimony just, it, it's, it means so much, you know, thank you. I think um, it's one thing when it's like, you know, we live it, but, you know, you, we've known you for so long and you've lived, you know, a whole life in so many different places and to have you land back here and be with us again, it means so much and, you know, it, and it's, um, I don't know, I'm, I'm speechless. <laughs> it just means, and especially I think for the convert journey, you know, because um, people who I think find us and find meaning here are all like searching for what it is that, um, that makes sense and that touches your heart and that makes you want to stay and be passionate. Um, and um, 
and that's just so absent everywhere in the Muslim space. So you know, when when you can find um, truth and and sense, common sense, um, it's so true. You can live, you can breathe, and um, and then start hoping for something much better and more beautiful. So I don't. That's that's just a gift and a blessing for all, for all of us. So thank you. Okay, I'm looking forward to another amazing session and. Uh, Inshallah, we'll also look forward to more people um, in the future sharing their stories. Thank you so much. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Wa subhanallah al-Ali al-Azim. Alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. Wa salatu wa salam. Ala Muhammad khatam al-anbiya'i wa rusli ajma'in. Al-Mursal rahmatan lil-alameen. Wa ala alih. الأطهار الميامين وعلى أصحابه الطيبين وعلى من اتبعوا إحسانا إلى يوم الدين اللهم اشرح لي صدري ويسر لي أمري واحلل عقدة من لساني يفقه قولي يا رب السورة إن شاء الله for today السورة النبأ SubhanAllah, that uh, well, we will we'll, uh, we'll get to Surah Naba in a second, inshallah. But I, I want to say something about what Elaine's testimony, because. Um, There is a lot that she didn't say because she's uh, too civilized and too kind and well-mannered. But one of the, the realities that uh, is that not only are converts often lonely, uh, on a on a very lonely journey with everything working against them but the part that really enrages me is that often converts are taken advantage of um, the whether the convert is a male uh, they're taken advantage of differently than when they're they are a female but converts are there. There is an an a, a an immorality, a type of immorality that exists among segments of the population of immigrants. I know a lot of Arabs who. Um, um, for whatever reason, uh, don't treat, a, especially a, a white convert, as if they're fully human. They take advantage of them, they manipulate them, they often do very abusive things, and then once they've set themselves up in life the way they imagine they're entitled to be set up, uh, 
then they'll think about moving on and marrying what they consider to be the real partner, usually someone of their same ethnicity or race. And the remarkable thing is, do people imagine, we've talked about the Prophet Aristotle's teaching of the obligation upon every Muslim to make people fall in love with Allah and to make Allah fall in love with people. And as I said before, when they asked the Prophet well, we have an obligation to make people fall in love with Allah. What is the obligation? How is the obligation to make Allah fall in love with people? And he said the obligation is to teach morality, teach people to be ethical, teach people to do what is right. That's how you teach people or teach, or that's how you promote Allah falling in love with people. But then when you think about converts create an implied moral obligation upon all those that call themselves Muslims. And the sin of taking advantage of the zeal and the enthusiasm and the excitement and the optimism of a convert can you imagine the, the sin that people incur when the Islam that they represent to a convert turns out to be Islam carefully crafted to serve the ego of the person engaging the convert? When it is ultimately just simply an Islam the sum total of that Islam is that I get my way, I serve my ends, and you deal with your problems on your own. Um, I often think to myself, all the things that Muslims need to change for Allah to start blessing us as a people. And generally speaking, the way we treat women, generally, is abysmal. So that already is, is you know, women are intellectual, spiritual partners, not body parts, not fetishes. We fetishize women and we but other than that, converts in particular, special, especially converts, it, it, it just, it is a, a um, I mean, I, I do not really, it, often I, the, the true uh, ethical, reality of a person reveals itself according to how they treat converts. 
whether the Tweed Conference was the type of full responsibility and awareness that Allah is watching and that Allah is meticulously observing whether you, in fact, you are like a messenger, a, a divine messenger to this convert, bringing them closer to Islam and closer to Allah, or whether ultimately you end up teaching them that there is a great deal of hypocrisy and a great deal of evil and a great deal of lies and a great deal of... And then the second thing that we've often talked in the past, but in conversations, Elaine, about just their experiences in life, there are so many people that pretend to be Muslim authorities, to pretend to have a persona of um, Muslim weight. But do not listen to the message of the Quran about the consequences of immoral behavior. What we call sin, which includes backbiting, which includes rumor mongering, which includes unverified accusations based on jealousy, which includes, instead of showing how Islam purifies the soul and gifts human beings with luminosity and light, you in fact show that Islam is just part of the human mess, full of layers of darkness. Sin reverberates. Sin reverberates through time and through generations. What you do affects not just people around you, but can but reverberates among people that you've even never met. And subhanAllah that we have Surah Al-Naba today because again Allah reminds us that in the hereafter you will confront the full consequences of what you've done wrong. You will see the causal connections clearly and transparently. And when you see the full causal connections, they become terrifying because everything we do affects everything else that exists. There is no such thing as behavior that only affects you. That's my, that's my two cents um, on what Elaine was too polite to say. In Surah Al-Naba, first we start out by situating Surah Al-Naba. Um, it's interesting from a historical perspective because 
Surah Al-Naba is revealed, most reports say that it was revealed after Surah Al-Muharish. And before Surah Al-Naza'at, which would make it a late Meccan revelation. Um, if, in, if it's indeed revealed after Al-Ma'arij and before Al-Naza'at, then it's a late Meccan revelation. And in fact, indications are that it is revealed shortly before Surat al-Rum al-An'ankabut. And we know that Surat al-Rum and al-An'kabut were um, revealed again shortly before the Hijrah. So you pause and you must, when you read Surat al-Naba, think to yourself, okay, we've received at this point the message that Allah delivered through a long line of Meccan Sur, which include, of course, Sur like Hud and Yunus and Yusuf and Surat al-Kahf had already been revealed, Surat al-Nahl had been revealed, Surat Ibrahim had been revealed, Surat al-Mu'minun. So we've already received a, a line of revelation that in many ways are delivering very nuanced moral ethical lessons in hindsight that we can say we're preparing Muslims for that ultimate moral action, the hijrah, the, the decision to sacrifice everything and risk everything in a new phase, which includes the actual act of construction of a society on the basis of Quranic ideals. But then we get surah like Naba and incidentally also surah al-mutaffifun, which we haven't covered. But reminding Muslims of something that by this, at this point, seems to be quite, um, how do I put it, quite obvious. Reminding Muslims of something that should be, by this point, apparent. And you, an engaged reader would ask themselves, well, after all of these lessons, why does Allah come in Surah Al-Naba 
and remind, Surah Al-Naba reads like it should have been an early Meccan revelation. But in fact, it's not. And so you, 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 you ask yourself the question of why come back and reassert and rephrase this basic point about accountability. So that should be in the background of what we think about I should say that even before we, we, we delve into it, that the Prophet in there, there are a number of versions of this hadith, but the, the older versions seem to, to have, I mean, have a certain common core. And that is where the Prophet says, Learn Surah Al-Naba. And he, in most of the versions, the Prophet says, surat to learn Surah Al-Naba, Surah Qaf, Qaf Al-Quran Al-Majid, Surah Al-Najm, Surah Al-Buruj, and Surah Tariq. So, Al-Naba, Qaf, Al-Najm, Al-Buruj, and Tariq, these five surahs. And the Prophet then says, فَإِنَّكُمْ لَوْ تَعْلَمُونَ مَا فِيهِنَّ لَعَطَّلْتُمْ مَا أَنْتُمْ عَلَيْهِ وَتَعْلَمْتُمْ مُهُنَّ وَتَقَرَّبُوا إِلَى اللَّهِ بِهِنَّ إِنَّ اللَّهِ يَغْفِرْ بِهِنَّ كُلَّ ذَنْبِ إِلَّا الشِّرْكِ So, the Prophet says, Learn these five because if you knew the power and the value of these five, you would, you would make time. You would rearrange your life to make time to learn these five. And you would learn them and you would teach them. And you would teach him in order to come closer to Allah. In other words, as a uh, the type of good deeds that Allah accepts from you and draws you in status closer and nearer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Because Doing so, you have the possibility or the, 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 yeah, the possibility that Allah would forgive your sins. And Allah forgives those who learn and teach these five sores, the sins of those who learn and, and teach these five sores. All their, all their sins are forgivable except for shirk. Now, I am always, the, 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 you know, every hadith that says recite X number of surah or do X, Y, or Z because Allah forgives all the sins must always come with the warning. Because we, the modern reader, doesn't know how to read 
pre-modern text. And this, the, the way it's phrased, the way medieval discourses are phrased, when they say that these five, Allah forgives all sins except shirk, it, it doesn't mean, and the, the, the medieval discourse of saying it, doesn't mean that it is like a vending machine, that you learn these five suar and you teach these five suar and you're guaranteed to get a product. But the phrasing of it means that by learning these five and teaching these five, you have a good chance or there is a good opportunity for forgiveness. Because of the, the way so many Muslims you know, think that they can act unethically and immorally and do all types of wrong things, but as long as I'm reciting these five suar or, you know, um, then I'm fine. No, no, obviously it doesn't work that way. The, the, and if, if anyone that knows how pre-modern discourses worked, the the sirat al-mubalagha that they they, they they tend to state things in absolutes re relied on the reader or the listener of those statements understanding that absolutes are not absolute. You know, that you don't take things in a literal way because in pre-modern discourses to state things in often an allegory or in, you know, as if you're stating mathematics, it relied on a certain cultural comprehension by the reader or by the receiver. So anyway, so Surah Al-Naba has, a, it's among the, the surah that is, or should be, among the surah that is most recited in, in prayer, um, among the basic surah that a Muslim should learn, should memorize, um, and its affirmations are affirmations of a basic and fundamental tenet. So it starts out with the rhetorical, or rhetorical question. So the rhetorical question is, what is it that they are wondering about? The occasion for the rhetorical question, there are many reports, but instead of, you know, going through, I'll summarize the gist of it. The gist of it is that although Muslims are at this stage in the da'wah, the da'wah has come into the open, we've already studied the suwar that challenged the Meccan way of life that have made Meccans realize that the ethics of the people that they are dealing with are, they leave little room for negotiation. 
they, they will not distance the slaves, they will not distance the outcasts, they are, there is, they will not approve of a variety of Meccan practices and as Surat Al-An'am makes clear that they will not even approve of many of the laws that Meccans deemed sacrosanct and um, inviolable, but yet Muslims come and say these laws have no basis and these are technical laws that have no morality behind them. And so at this point, you would think that the interests of the Quran would be purely with the types of issues that Surat Al-An'am raised, issues about the persecution of Muslims, issues about how there is a complete rejection of the, the Prophet by the elite, elite of Mecca, uh, issues about the way that Meccans kill the uh, daughters, or at least poor families or, or poor tribes, kill their daughters. But it comes and asks this rhetorical question. Now, there are two reports. Some reports say that the people who are asking the questions that Surah Al-Naba responds to were some converts to Islam. Other reports say that, no, it wasn't converts to Islam, but rather Meccan society itself. And the Quran says, what is it that they wonder about? And what is it that they, that they question? And that, what is it that they debate? And I'll, I'll, I'll uh, comment on this in a second. And it responds to that rhetorical question and says about the the great news. Now, what is the great news? Two schools of thought. One of them more likely than the other. One school of thought said that the great news that Surah Al-Naba is referring to is the Quran. So in other words, that it is saying that the Meccans at this point still argue with one another or still debate with one another the origins of the Quran, the meaning of the Quran, their resentments against the Quran, their grievances against the Quran, That's the first school. The second school says, no, it's not the Quran, but it is simply the final day. And that's actually the school that's more likely to be correct. Okay, so what about the final day? Well, the reports, and interestingly, the reports say that the same debates, whether it was attributed to converts to Islam or attributed to the Kuffar of Mecca, but they're fundamentally, essentially, the same debates. 
And the debates were focused on not just the possibility of, or the idea of resurrection, but um, what form could resurrection possibly take? And so in the Bible, in the New Testament, we already have the New Testament refers to Ard al-Mi'ad, which becomes corrupted in English to Eden, Ard al-Mi'ad. And Ard al-Mi'ad is basically heaven, Jannah. And in the Torah, the Torah refers to Janiza. Janiza in Hebrew is Jannah in Arabic. And so both the New Testament and the Old Testament refer to heaven and especially the New Testament refers to hell. The, the, the Torah refers to Janiza and then the, the, the land of loss. Or the the or the or the underground, which is that takes us to. But some folks within even Christianity and Judaism had were and these has raised debates as to whether resurrection maintains the individual human consciousness or not. So some said you are resurrected in spirit, but not body. So you're resurrected just as a ghost, but the body is not resurrected. Some said that you're resurrected, but figuratively that resurrection is a figurative idea, and this was among, especially among the uh, uh, school in, in rabbinic Judaism. And, and some of the Karaites, which, uh, um, that resurrection is, is a symbolic metaphor about reclaiming the soul but it is not intended to be taken literally. Some said that you are resurrected as a spirit, but the spirit returns to the great spirit so that your individual consciousness ceases to be. So in other words, there is the great spirit. The great spirit is the the mother of all, the, the, the creator of all things, and that when you are resurrected, you, you simply return to that great spirit. So the point is the individual consciousness ceases to be. And of course, after this, especially among the kuffar of Mecca, not the, the converts, but those who said, well, Resurrection is 
an impossibility that neither in spirit nor in body do you get resurrected. Whatever you do, you gain the results, good or, for better or for worse, on this earth. And personally, I would think that if you are looking at, if you study the, the, the history of social movements and political movements, you find that they might begin with some spiritualist ideas, but as they progress into political um, competition and trauma, they no longer speak about spiritual ideas, ideals. But what's very interesting about the Quran is that after delivering all these sophisticated messages that we studied, it comes back and intervenes or makes an intervention. And insists for, if it's the Muslim camp, that let's be very clear about what resurrection will entail for you. And if it is the non-Muslim camp, that this, despite all that you've heard about you challenging your laws and challenging your way of life and all the various sophisticated ideas that were presented in the soar up to this point, this is ultimately about accountability in the real life, which is the further life, and presents it in this rather defiant and decisive manner. Al-Nabi Al-Azim, this great event or great news that they debate and they argue about, and the response to this is, We've seen this before, this device of no you will no you will come to know the truth. For sure you will come to know the truth. It's like simply saying, I know that you human beings consistently gravitate towards thinking of the consequences, confronting the consequences of your behavior, of your conduct, or as remote and with remoteness comes lack of familiar, familiarity. The more remote you think it is, the more alien it becomes to you. And the Quran brings you back at this point and says, well, guess what? Your knowledge of it should bridge that gap of remoteness because it is, if there's anything that is certain in your life, it is that. And 
what's interesting is that the rest of the surah will shed light on what is it that they will come to know. But it is not answered immediately. Rather, it just simply says, okay, you know, you are going on and on with your debates. Your attitude towards, about, towards this matter should be an attitude of certitude because verily you will know. There's a hadith that, and I, I'll, I'll, I'll explain in, in a second. There's a hadith that is reported I can't get this thing to work. Rami? Oh, okay, it worked. Okay. <laughs> um, a hadith is reported where Ma'az bin Jabal radiallahu anh asked the Prophet al-Nabi'l-Azim. And the hadith, so first, I mean, so the Prophet responds, Ya Ma'az, sa'alta an umran azim min al-umur, summa arsal al-ayinayi. So, so he says, Ma'az asked the Prophet, and Naba al-Azim, this surah, the great news, and the Prophet says, you, you've asked about a, a very grave matter. Summa arsal al-ayinayi, then the Prophet start, you know, looks like he's in, in deep contemplation or deep thought. Now, I'm going to, to, to talk about a concept that, uh, well, I talk about a lot of things that strikes Muslims as not, okay. Hadith literature, we, we often Muslims using the isnad method. The conclusion is this is a hadith that is authentic, this is a hadith that is not authentic, this is a hadith that has certain defects and so on. But if we use the historical method in addition to the isnad method, we would realize something very important is that often there is an authentic meaning that is being communicated by a hadith. But a hadith is not the Quran, so the phrasing itself might not be authentic. Why is this important? Because the phrasing often reflects all the characteristics of rhetorical devices of a historical period. So, for instance, 
if their historical devices of a particular historical period talks about those who are dishonored and disgraced as appearing as monkeys or appearing as pigs or appearing as people uh, crucified on the trunk of a palm tree. Crucified doesn't mean crucified like the, the, the Christian form of crucifixion. When sub in, in the Arab context meant that you're just hung on the tree, not, not the... So, the narrator or the narrators were clearly affected by the imagery and the language of their age. But when you look at the moral lesson of what is being communicated, you find that cumulatively, that there are cumulative reports that tells you this moral lesson indeed did go back to the Prophet or to the early Muslims at the very least. Hadith Ma'az is one of those. And I think as I read it, you might start understanding what I'm talking about. So, so in this hadith, reportedly attributed to the Prophet, the Prophet answers that people will, be, will come in al-yawm al-azim in ten forms. There will be qirada, there will be monkeys, there will be khanazir, there will be pigs. There will be those who are dragging themselves with their legs above their head. Now this to me immediately historicizes the report. Because the idea today, if you put your legs behind your head, we might call it yoga, right? <laughs> Back then, if you, those who put their heads behind their head are the most worthless, dishonored human beings because they're usually were the jesters, the, uh, those who monkey around to entertain others. Okay. And some of them will be blind and deaf some of them will be their their they had bit their tongues so their tongues are hanging down from their mouths upon their chest that again historically places the narration because the idea although think about it physiologically how many of you can bite your tongue so your tongue will actually dangle down all the way from your mouth to your chest but in the medieval imagination of, we, and we find this often in poetry, that the, 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 uh, um, that imagery of your tongue hanging down on your chest was often portrayed when you wanted to humiliate someone. So you'd say, you know, they, were, they came looking like um, this and that with their tongues hanging down from their mouth down on their chest. Okay. 
Um, and some of them will come crucified on the on trunks of palm trees. And some of them will come as if rotted corpse. So all of this, all of this colorful imagery, I would consider them literary devices, not authentic statements of what the Prophet ﷺ said. So what's authentic then? Okay. It's the following. So then the report goes on to say, أما الذين على سورة الخنازير في أهل الصحت. Sorry, first. فأما الذين على سورة القرضة. فالفتات من الناس. So those who are monkeys, coming coming the appearance of monkeys, are people who. Uh, lived a burden on others without dignity or honor. Those who will come looking like pigs are going to be those people who may, do, may eat from bribery. That they've made bribery into a way of life or accepted bribery. And those that will come with their face flat down will be those who dealt with the riba, usually. And those who are blind are those who are unjust in their rulings, including, of course, rulers. As to those who will be mute and blind, are those who those who are pompous and prideful about their accomplishments and their deeds. As to those who will come with bit tongues hanging down from their mouths onto their chest, that it will be the scholars and narrators who teach one thing and do another thing. But those who will be come with a hand and a foot cut off, their hands and feet cut off, sorry, are those who hurt their neighbors. وَأَمَّا الْمَصْلُوبُونَ عَلَى جُزُوعًا مِنَ النَّارِ فَالسُعَابِ النَّاسِ إِلَى السُلْطَانِ And those who will be crucified are those who hurt people in service of rulers, in service of the Sultan. وَأَمَّا الَّذِينَ هُمْ أَشَدُّ نَتْنَا مِنَ الْجِيْفِ فَالَّذِينَ and those who will be who will smell like the rot of a corpse will be those who 
pursue their shahawat, uh, their desires, and the that their their yeah their desires, and do not give the poor their rights in do not give of their money to the poor, or give their money to whoever deserves to receive money. Um, and then also the, those who are arrogant and so on. So, so the moral, what, what is important in this narration, you know, I could have just skipped it because of, of the, the, the subtleties around this narration, but I don't want to skip it because it, it conveys an important methodological issue and moral issue. In a report like this, when you find so many other reports that bolster the same meaning, the chances that the Prophet ﷺ, for a variety of reasons, the chances that the Prophet ﷺ actually uttered these words and said that some will come to appear like pigs, some will appear like monkeys, some will appear like this, some will appear like that, is, in my view, practically non-existent. But the categories of people it condemns in this very colorful language is very probative as to what, at the time that Surah Al-Naba is revealed, was considered truly immoral by early Muslims. So you have a, a moral lesson. The moral lesson is preserved in the language of the age and in the imagination of the age. And so you, when, when narrators of later generation preserve it, they preserve it in terms of looking like monkeys, looking like pigs, looking. What you focus on is what were the ethical categories that they considered critical and what were the unethical violations that considered that they considered to be deserving of the most vehement reprobation and condemnation. And so if we understand the report from that approach, then what is it saying? Then it's saying, those people who lived without dignity willing to be a burden upon others are highly immoral and deserving of punishment. Those people who pay and receive bribery and violate the rules by buying a privilege and an advantage for themselves are deserving of punishment. Those people who exploit the need of others and say, I will give you money, but you give me, when you pay back the money, usually, 
you add to it X amount, we're deserving of, again, absolute moral condemnation. Those people who ruled unjustly for whatever the reason, instead of focusing on what is just, they focus on what is politically advantage, advantageous or expedient or doing favors to others or obeying an unjust command. Those who were pompous and prideful were deserving of the same moral reprobation. Those who posed themselves as scholars and authorities, but were hypocrites because what they taught is different than what they did, again, fell in the same category. And those people who served power not caring if they hurt other human beings also fell in the same category. And those who lived their lives in pursuit of pleasures and what we today call consumption, for the sake of consumption, and think of money as theirs without without Allah having a right in this money. This money is not mine, it's Allah's. I'm just a trustee in it. They are so disgusting, they are like rotted corpse. The jeef, netin. They, they smell so bad. And then those who wear who wear clothes to for kibar and khayala wal those who wear clothes in order to display their social status and to belittle others. So wear expensive clothes in order to show off. So it is again critical methodologically that we use our intellects, our knowledge of history, and knowledge of literature to understand the ethical lessons that our tradition teaches. The issue is not whether you are going to appear like a monkey or appear like a pig, or, or that you will appear crucified on a palm tree in the hereafter, the issue was who are, what are the, the categories of behavior that is so immoral that collective memory remembered that the prophet or even the companions of the prophet as teaching are the people who are truly in trouble because of that big news. عَمَّا يَتَسَأَلُونَ عَنِ النَّبَعِ الْعَظِيمِ الَّذِي هُمْ فِيهُ مُخْتَلِفُونَ so then you reflect not just on these stark ethical categories, but on all similar unethical behavior. Because as we said, 
evil conduct reverberates, its damage reverberates through the ages. If someone sexually abuses a daughter, that daughter is going to become a mother. And the children of that mother are going to suffer. And the children of the children are going to suffer. It all started with this act of abuse, but the evil reverberates. Now, this is not just in sexual abuse, but bribery reverberates because of what it teaches people about how you get ahead in life and about the way people think about justice, the way people think about morality. Similarly, attitude towards a jawruf al-hukm. Yeah, oh, you know, it's okay if I, you know, do this person a favor, do this boss a favor, do this authority, and be unfair because the damage of injustice reverberates. When you serve the Sultan and you hurt someone, the damage reverberates through generations of people. Now, I'm saying this because of what Surah Al-Naba' will tell us. Okay. So, no, they will know. Surely, they will come to know. Then there is the Quranic common Quranic um, rhetorical device where Allah reminds you first before telling you of the issue of, or before reminding you of the issue of just deserves. Allah reminds you of the obvious points that make just deserves inevitable. So, ألم نجعل الأرض مهادا وأم جست okay so first ألم نجعل الأرض مهادا والجبال أوتادا so what can we say about this well first normally this will be translated as didn't we flatten the earth so that you can live on it but mihad is, of course, elsewhere the Quran describes, we say, the, the Allah making the ard or making earth a firash or a basat. But in this situation, Allah chose the expression mihad, mihad. So we say, the origin of this is like al-mahdul al-sabi. وَهُوَ مَا يُمْهَدُ لَهُ فَيَنَاوُ فِيهِ We've made the earth not just flat, but so conducive to your living 
that it is as if the earth is like the bed that you set out for a child so that the child can sleep comfortably. Remember what we said with Surah Al-An'am that everything begins with the relationship of gratitude. If you look upon the earth and you don't see all the ways that Allah has made this earth, even we the expression Mother Earth, that Allah has made this earth like a mother or like a comfortable bed, prone to, to serve you and comfort you. So Allah paid your privilege, your reward forward. And the mountains anchors. Now, we've said in the past that the, the whole idea that mountain is anchoring the crust of the earth was even the pre-modern Mufassirun, the, the people who wrote Tafasir, you know, often struggled with this idea and said, well, you know, um, maybe the mountains just look like they are holding something, but it was not um, within the realm of knowledge that there is a crust of earth that is actually unstable and that the mountains are a result of volcanic activity that then hold that crust in place and stabilize it and so on. Okay. Now, this again, I often say you read the morality of it. When Allah reminds you that we've created, could be read as we've created pairs, created you in pairs. Everything is in a relationship of duality, positive and negative, dark and light. Or the more likely reading, We've created you in, as companions. In other words, when I read وَخَلَقْنَاكُمْ أَزْوَاجًا it is, it is as if Allah is expressing to us the na'mah, the blessing of realizing that Part of Allah's blessings is the fact that you ache for and hopefully find a companion that we've created in your in your in the system of life the value of companionship. When I read Khalaknaqum Azwaja, I learned from it. And because it is so, the point I'm expressing is so unusual, that's why I'm saying I learned from it. Because um, I don't care, you know, I, 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 this is not what you're going to read, unfortunately, in a lot of literature, but 
where I learned from it, is that you are created with the expectation of a companion. That companionship is a right. And it's a companion. It's not a servant. It's not a slave. It's not someone that you fetishize and use and then discard. It's not someone that you fight with. It is a companion. And that if you study the Quran, you will find that the natural expectation of things is a companion, not many companions. In other words, not polygamy, but monogamy. So in even that expression, all of it conveys to me the natural morality that Allah encoded in existence. Comfort is good. Comforting is comforting. Comfort is comforting. But there must be anchors in your life in the same way that Allah anchored the crust of the earth with the outad. What anchors you, as I've said many times, are your ethics and your morality, that core. Comfort without the outad, without the ethical and moral anchor, is severely corrupting. And outad without the comfort is also corrupting. If you are nothing but about the law, but you seem to be oblivious to human feelings and human needs, that becomes itself corrupting. And companionship and understanding the great ethical implication inherent in the lesson of companionship. وجعلنا نومكم سباتا وجعلنا الليل لباسا وجعلنا النهار معاشا So and we've given you the blessing of sleep which allows us or should allow us to very to in to, to understand the 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 varieties of experiencing life whether in sleep 
and dreams and all the blessings that come with the rituals of sleep and all that comes with the tranquility or what ought to be the tranquility and repose of the night as well as the activism and energy of the day. Okay. And this is of course normally translated as the seven heavens. But as we said that whether they're heavens or epochs or we don't know seven what precisely. But what is the most interesting um, is that in the Sufi tradition that as you would expect understand much of this metaphorically um, and uh, there is an origin to all these tabaqat but they say that the reference to sab'an shidada that we've made seven firm ones above you is not necessarily a reference to the seven heavens, but a reference to seven tabaqat or seven levels. And it's a very fascinating discourse. I'll just you know, mention it and talk, talk about it a little bit because otherwise it just will take us a long time. So the, what, what are the seven levels that they are talking about? Well, they say that they are the seven levels of uh, comprehension and um, comprehension and understanding. And so normally they say that they are the seven layers of what the heart apprehends and understands. So the first they call it tabakat al-sulur. Tabakat al-sulur, which is, this is the first layer upon which Islam enters the heart. It is a superficial layer, but a very important layer that your heart opens up to Islam. And that in principle, your heart says, I want Islam. The second layer is what they call tabakatul qalb. The layer of the qalb, that's what they call it. And there is where beyond just saying, I want Islam, Iman actually starts forming in your heart. Actual belief. Where you move from Islam is most probably right to knowing that Allah is right, the hereafter is right, accountability is right. The third is what they call tabakat al-shighaf, 
And that is tabakatul ishq wal mahabba wal shafaqa. Although they call it tabakatul ishq wal mahabba wal shafaqa, what shighaf really is, is the, the level where you learn to see everything through empathy. Injustice becomes impossible because you're empathetic with all. Infliction of harm becomes very difficult because you see the world through the prism of empathy. The fourth is tabaqat al-fu'ad. And this is what they call tabaqat al-ru'ya wal-mukashafa wal-mushahada, where your iman, now you've, you've gone through, you want Islam to iman, to actual empathy, to then seeing what is behind the principle of tarahum and the veils between you and Allah start lifting. But not just Allah, normally tabaqat al-fu'ad, they say, is that you start seeing reality for what it is that a tree is there because Allah wanted it to be there. And that it is not merely a tree, but it is an embodiment of the divine will. And that a tree in its very existence is a tasbih lillahi al azim That it supplements, it, it, it um, testifies to the oneness and singularity of Allah. That everything is there by the right of the divine will. And so your nature, your relationship to reality changes. The fifth is what they call Tabaqat al-habba, or sometimes they say al-habba. And in this, the fifth level, and this is all in sorry. That this is here where now that you've seen the reality of things, you start truly falling in love with Allah and understanding what it means to love Allah and be loved by Allah. The sixth is what they call tabaqat suwayda. And suwayda is what they say al-ilm al-ladunni وبيت الحكمة where knowledge, your knowledge no longer is simply empirically based but 
it is based on an intuitive grasp of wisdom. Because your relationship to Allah makes you see that this is good or this is bad by things that are not apparent to the empirically based eye. Like auras, for instance, like light, when <coughs> something, a human being is luminous or dark. And then the sevens, which reportedly only the very blessed reach is what they call Tabaqat al And that is when Allah lifts the veil so that you understand of the secrets of existence. Now sometimes when they, you read descriptions of Tabaqat al-Izza, sometimes I feel that I am reading descriptions of people who've gone through wormholes. Um, and things that, um, but anyway, that Tabaqat al-Izza is where you just, you, you, you no longer see the material world as even worthy of perception because what is worthy of perception is what is beyond the material world. Okay. Oh, okay, we have to break for us. Uh, so if you can, don't go away as we pray for us and come back. Or actually not if you can, but you should. But I just don't want to make it a command because then it's not polite. But you absolutely must come back after us. That's the point. Okay. So, where did we leave us? وَبَلَيْنَ فَوْقَكُمْ سَبْعًا شِدَادًا وَجَعَلْنَا سِرَاجًا وَحَاجًا وَأَنْزَلْنَا مِنَ الْمُعْصَرَاتِ مَاءً سَجَّاجًا لِنُخْرِجَ بِهِ حَبًّا وَنَبَاتًا وَجَنَّاتٍ أَلْفَافًا إِنَّ يَوْمَ الْفَصْلِ كَانَ مِيقَاتًا so, from, we are at Ayah 13, 14, 15, and 16. Um, the, the, uh, the first, that, and then Allah, Siraj wa Hajj is a reference to the sun. Wanzanna min al Masrati ma and Sajaja. The in reference of course to rain and but there is a there's a the expression of Masarat Ma and Sajaja that um it's it's a reference to the way that clouds become laden or how wind pollinate clouds to become as if carrying water um, 
which is a, it's a, the, the Arabic is a very powerful image of how clouds form and uh, release water upon earth. And then the growth from that of plants and seeds and full gardens. So that's the, the, uh, the obvious meaning of the, these ayat. Um, there is, again, the Sufi-esque tradition which tends to understand this metaphorically. We say, وَجْعَنَّا سِرَاجًا That in, in, your, in life, um, Allah makes the truth of what is good and luminous always apparent. And however, while it is conceptually apparent, the way that life works is through the Masarat, that in fact through trial and tribulations, sometimes that apparent truth is clouded, it's cast over. But while trials and tribulations can cast over the luminous light of goodness, i.e. The, the, here the sun, that in fact trials and tribulations, the same, the same difficulties that conceal the sun of truth are the difficulties that from which is produced the, the secret of goodness of life. How here symbolized by the fall of water and the growth of vegetation. In other words, that yes, the truth is always there. And without the truth, the vegetation wouldn't grow. Without the sun of truth, the vegetation wouldn't grow. But the vegetation just doesn't grow because of the sun of truth. The vegetation grows because of the tests and difficulties of life. Now, the tests and difficulties of life, the water can fall and you can refuse to grow anything because of that water. The lessons that you learn, you could waste it. You could say, I'm not gonna plant anything. I, I'm jaded, I'm whatever. Or you can use the, the truth, the sun of the truth, or the truth of the sun, or the, 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 the luminosity, and the water here, meaning the lessons of what you've learned from your trials and tribulations, to in fact make goodness grow. The Nabat, the Hab, the Jannat al Faf. So it starts out with plants and seeds and progresses to actually luscious gardens of goodness.
Okay. So, with this transition, that then Allah takes you that, well, at the journey, whether you've learned from the Sabah Shidad, the seven layers that we've talked about, or whether you've been able to perceive the luminous, bright sun of truth, or whether you've wasted the water of experience to grow seeds and plants and luscious gardens or not, whether in fact you allowed the water to just flow away and you ended up with deserts. Ultimately, يَوْمَ الْفَصْلِ كَانَ مِيْقَاتًا That ultimately, إِنَّ يَوْمَ الْفَصْلِ كَانَ مِيْقَاتًا That there come the, the decisive day is your appointed time. It's like the, the, the appointment that you will not be able to escape. And the imagery here is that it's sort of like you, you have an appointment with this day and there's just no way around that appointment. It will inevitably come. Okay. When the day that the trumpet is blown and you will come in afwaj in um, um, waves in huge numbers. Okay, so. The first is Futtihat Elsewhere, the Quran refers repeatedly to the change in the nature of cosmic reality. And, and even the material reality of something as solid as mountains that will appear as if whether uh, elsewhere in the Quran where Allah talks about uh, Allah destroying the mountains altogether or that they become that become as if just um, threads and or, or um, um, threaded cotton or something like that but the point is that the very nature of the reality that surrounds you will change. What ap appears solid and firm like, that, like mountains, that reality will change. But the heavens themselves, that expression, Futihat al-Samaw Fakanat Abwaba, it, to my mind, when you read the descriptions of what astronomers say exists, things like wormholes and black holes and so on. Um, and you read medieval descriptions of what they imagined would be the way that the, the, the heavens would open as if 
doors in the heavens have come open and, and humans are passing through and angels is passing through, it is clearly a reality that we have no frame of reference to. And we can only understand allegorically. But again, in the Sufi tradition especially, this is understood metaphorically. So in the Sufi tradition, the way that they understand the opening of the heavens, so as if it is doors, they say that, remember in the Sufi tradition, references to Sama is always a reference to the soul. And so they talk about that, um, that at that point, Sama or Rawah, that the soul of human beings will attain complete and perfect perception. And so the, the doors that are going to be opened are the doors that hamper perception. And the jibal that will become sarab are the jibal of hujub. Meaning that these are the mountains of veils that prevent human beings from true transparent perception. Uh, Elaine, at the beginning of, of, what, uh, of her talk, said that we see 1% of the colors of existence. And it struck me because this is very consistent with a lot of the Sufi nature is that seeing with complete and full perception of the reality of existence without the hujub makes you see something that is completely different than what you've lived in. Okay. I'm just always trying to make sure I didn't forget anything. Yeah. Um, also, uh, um, you that when the Shiba, that when the mountains are becoming like as if a mirage, that part of what is removed is the false, the falsity imposed upon perception by the ego. The ego constantly hampers your ability to see what you might know in your heart to be truth. But the ego is so powerful that it will convince you otherwise. And that what is removed is also your defensive mechanisms that uh, you've relied on throughout your life to say that you see what you say you see. Okay. And because ultimately the Mursad, and this is now uh, 21. I want to see how they translated Mursad. 
uh, yeah, they said, study Quran, so hell lies in ambush. No, it's not an ambush. It's, it's not that hell lies in ambush. Um, Al-Mirsad is what, if something that, if it's waiting for you, this is the conditional. If the fate that if, if it happens to be yours, you cannot escape. So that's why we say Rasdu Shay' is to keep track of something. Your Mirsad is what you cannot escape. So when Allah says that Inna Jahannam Kanat Mirsada, that those who belong to Jahannam, belong in hell, will not escape it. Okay. لِلْطَاغِينَ مَآبَ لَا بِثِينَ فِيهَا أَحْقَابَ لَا يَذْمُقُونَ فِيهَا بَرْدًا وَلَا شَرَابًا إِلَّا حَمِيمًا وَغَسَّاقًا جَزَاءً وِفَاقًا إنهم كانوا لا يرجون حسابا وكذبوا بآياتنا كذابا وكل شيء أحصيناه كتابا فذوقوا فلن نزيدكم إلا عذابا. So this is now from 21 to 30. First, for me, when when Allah says للطاغين مآبا Again, it's one of these brief expressions that relay a world of morality. Because when Allah says, Lil ma'aba, that who are the ta'in? It is all those who are oppressors, all those who are unjust, all those who A tari is is a, a tari is a person who commits injustice. A tariya is what we call a despot or an oppressor. So when Allah says "lit-tarina ma'aba," it's like saying, if you fall in that category of a tari. A horrible category, the category of someone who is unjust, someone who is oppressor, someone who is oppressive. That is the home that awaits you. So it's a world of ethics related in two words. Translate: If we just listen and uh, and believe ma'aba, there wouldn't be despotism in the Muslim world there wouldn't be oppression in the Muslim world because it, is, it would be enough to say and everyone understand that well, you know, you're not going to fool Allah. Allah knows whether you've imprisoned people unjustly, whether you suffocate people, whether you belittle people, demean people, degrade people. And that's Jahannam is Mursad. That for those people, Jahannam is an inevitable way, fate. 
Okay. Labithina fiha ahqaba. There is a debate about this um, ayah which is 23. Ahqab is the periods of time. So when Allah says, Labithina fiha ahqaba, they will remain there periods of time. So the, there is a, in the theological works, there's a whole discussion about when they are, is it that they will be there for epochs, for periods of time until they pay off their sins? And then some even, some scholars even went as far as saying that this ayah was abrogated, but I, I don't believe that. But the ahqab, you know, any intelligent human being wouldn't take much comfort in that because there is a hadith um, attributed to the Prophet that says um, that the ahqab epochs, each epoch in Arabic language was 80 years. But then the Prophet says, or sometimes some of the reports are attributed to companions instead of the prophet. But either way, that 80 years, but how many 80 years, how many epochs, how many periods of 80 years, we don't know. And that these are not earth years, but cosmic years. So a day, in one of those 80, one day in those 80 years is equal to a thousand years in earthly time. So take 80 years, each year has X number of days, and each day is worth a thousand. So it's one heck of a very long time in hell anyway. You know, it's those who read and say, oh, well, then great, you know, we'll just pay for our sins and will be free. Again, it's taking Allah for granted. Their punishment, a description of their punishment as, I think I can rely on the Surah Quran for this, I hope. Um, uh, they taste therein neither coolness nor drink, save boiling liquid and a cold murky fluid, um, a fitting recompense. The la barda wala sharaba. Those who take even the descriptions of hell allegorically, what we can say is that there will be no comfort, not the comfort that you get from even thirst and quenching your thirst, or the comfort that you get from escaping the, uh, the heat. And illa hamima mughassaqa, there are you know, meanings of hamima mughassaqa, literal meanings, they tell you that it is the pus but Hamim Ghassaq, we don't really know what they mean other than and an very unpleasant anxiety-filled condition of intense discomfort and unhappiness. 
Jaza'an wifaqa, they're just to serve. Now, they're just to serve. Innahum kanu la yarjuna hisaba is descriptive. These are the people who counted on their not their, not there being accountability. And ultimately, they did not believe us when we told them you will be held be held accountable and that accountability is inescapable because in fact what they will confront is that we've kept track or kept record of everything a meticulous record that they will see presented to them in the hereafter. Okay. فَزُوْقُوا فَلَنَّ ذِيدَكُمْ إِلَّا عَزَابًا In Sufi literature, they tell, they, they, they're often an emphasis on that the worst hell is confronting the true nature of the injustice and evil that you've committed. Because, and, and this is what I believe, is that the true hell is that you will live the injustice and evil that you've committed, but from the perspective of those who suffer the consequences of the evil that you've committed. And that is the Hamim and the Ghassaq. That is the, the, the punishment that you can't escape, to see the full consequences of what you've done and to experience the full consequences of what you've done. Okay. Then, inna lilmuttaqina mafaza, now, as to those, where is it? This is 31. Muttaqina um, yeah. mafaz, the mafaz is everything that is triumphant and like saying, um, Everything that is triumphant and well-deserved. So, on the other side are those who are entitled to mafaz, to, to being, to feeling that they have triumphed. Hada'iqa wa a'naba wa kawa'iba atraba wa ka'asan dihaqa la yasma'una fiha lahwa wa la kizzaba. So here we go back to the, the literal descriptions of Jannah and especially the Sufi-esque tradition which takes all descriptions of Jannah um, metaphorically. So, hada'iq wa'anab the gardens and the grapes 
in Sufi literature is always the gardens of knowledge and, and awareness. That the, 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 the grapes are the, like, like saying the perils of wisdom. But in Arabic it is the grapes of wisdom. And that, the, and that what you take in is in direct proportion to what you've achieved in life. وَكَأَسًا دِحَاقًا In the traditional tafsir, they tell you again, there are cups of wine, overflowing cups of wine. But as we said before, that in Sufi's literature, they say there's nothing appealing in cups of wine. It is cups dihaq overflowing with knowledge of the truth of divinity and the light of divinity. But we pause at Kawaiba at Atraba. Because in traditional tafsir, kawa'iba atrab are always taken to mean women with firm, budding breasts. So, and Some even of the Sufi literature, they, although they've trans, <laughs> although uh, they interpreted um, Hada'iqa wa Anaba metaphorically and interpreted Ka'san Dihaqa metaphorically, they come to Kawa'iba Atraba and they don't interpret it metaphorically. Um, among, of course, the, the Arabs at that time, the most attractive, the most attractive time for a girl is when she is young and her breasts are growing and firm. And so this is a testament to misogyny and the power of misogyny in interpretation. Because Kawai, uh, first, atrab means something that is an equal to you or a companion to you. Now, kawa'ib could mean girls, but the literal meaning of kawa'ib is anything that is wonderful or Beautiful. So, Kawaiba Atraba could have been understood as, and the, in, in fact, a more direct translation of it would be that you have wonderful companions. Now, if you take it from a Sufi perspective, your wonderful companions are companions that can share in the joy of enlightenment. So it's nothing sexual. It's that I have finally people who understand the beauty that we are perceiving. 
and the beauty that we are receiving and the passion for Allah. If you take it, even if you take it literally, but not toward the Sufi, you could say that you will have companions that are wonderful, male or female. That you will, you will, you will not be lonely, in other words, in general. But misogyny, which you cannot ignore in tafsir tradition, focused on how firm the breasts of these girls are. And I am, don't know what the study Quran says, but let's see, because I am, yeah, here. Buxom maidens of like age. For the life of me, tafsir after tafsir, I am sure you will find always some type of reference to the breasts of maidens. Anyone else have a, what does your tafsir say? Maidens of matching age. Oh, who's that? Abdul Halim. Did you say maidens of, no, no reference to breasts? So Abdul Halim is actually didn't do what I expected that they all do. He, he, which is, I would say, wonderful companions, I think would be a better translation, but anyway, that Abdul Halim's translation, maidens of matching age, is still better than what you normally find in books of tafsir which is all too focused on female body parts or the fetishizing of female body parts. Okay, jaza'an min rabbika ata'an hisaba that this is just deserve and reward. Rabbis samawati wal ardu wa ma baynahum ar-rahmanu ar-rahmani la yamlikuna minhu khitaba that Again, when we saw this in Surah Al-An'am, that Allah brings you back to the core idea that you are dealing with the Rahman and that the very nature of mercy is to achieve justice. That you, they, there is no means for people to talk their way out of their just rewards. But this is a critical idea that to achieve mercy, to be merciful, is to be just. Forgiveness without justice can actually be quite cruel. Okay. Yawma yakhumu al-ruhu wal-mala'iqtu saffa la yatakallamuna illa man azina lahu al-rahman wa qala sawaba that this is 38 the day the spirit and angels stand in rows None speaking, save 
one whom the compassionate permits and who speaks right. So the main thing here is that in the books of Tafasir, they, there is so much written about who, what is a ruh. And of course, we know the reference to a ruh, the reference to what has been translated in, in the Bible as the Holy Ghost. But in Hebrew and Arabic, it translates to spirit. It, it's Holy Ghost is a romanization of the Hebrew spirit. But what is the spirit? Is it as some have said, the angel Gabriel? Is it an angel that we don't know? Some have said that the spirit is basically a metaphor for all human souls. Some have said that the spirit are beings like Khidr, who are not angels, not prophets, but not average human beings. The answer is, as Allah says, when they asked the Prophet about the ruh, about the spirit, and they're simply told, that only Allah knows. But it is, what we as Muslims know is that the spirit is not divine. It's not a companion to God as the, what, the, the corrupted reading of the Bible led to it in um, Christianity. Okay. So this is the day of truth so that whoever wants to clearly walk the path to their Lord can do so. Because ultimately this is the day where the day of Adab and Qarib, that this is the day where what you see as a far away consequence, punishment, is in fact imminent and close. It is only your, the false perception of time that leads to what you imagine. And critically, ma qaddamat that this is the day that you simply earn a recompense to what you've done. And while those who do not believe have spent, now notice the surah begins with Amma Yatasa'alun. So with those who don't believe ultimately saying, we die, we become dust, and that's the end of it. And you can't fail to notice that the way that the surah ends is by saying, indeed, you will wish that you would have amounted to nothing but dust. That it's like, it like as if saying, you will only wish that would have been true, that you would have amounted to nothing. So I go back again, notice that in, in Surah Al-Naba, which um, some, I mean, in early reports, some have said uh, that it is called Surah Amma Yatasa'alun, that didn't 
survive. Some said it's uh, Surah Al-Tasa'ul, but that didn't survive either. And Surah Al-Naba' became the, the name of the Surah that was accepted by the, the vast majority of authorities. But Surah Al-Naba' comes at this late stage and whatever the, the, the debates that were taking place or the discussions that was, were taking place, it delivers in a very succinct, early Meccan style surah. The very simple principle that don't forget, even after delivering the message of Surat Hud and Yunus and Yusuf and An'am and all the suar that talk to you about establishing just societies, establishing justice itself, what is the, the core morality, that when all said and done, it is about a just deserve and accountability. And what I also found is that some had started saying, well, Allah is a Rahman. So doesn't this mean inevitably forgiveness? And Surah Al-Naba comes back and says, it is not about forgiveness, it is about justice. Delivering in this very short surah, at the same time, it's a very strong reminder that and I, I do agree with the descriptions, all descriptions of heaven use language that tries to communicate to us a reality that we do not have a frame of reference to. And same thing with hell. But that fundamentally and essentially, in hell, you will not be able to escape the reality of what you've done. And in heaven, depending on who you are, either you will be intoxicated and happy with the superficial material fulfillment, but I share with the Sufis a sense of, um, well, if that's your level, I feel sorry for you, or a sense of fulfillment by realizing the truth and the beauty of Allah unhampered by the veils and the obstructions that exist. Uh, unless I forgot anything, that's Surah Al-Naba, Walhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. So, oh, yeah, I did forget one thing. <laughs> when Allah says, وَجِبَالْ أَوْتَاد وَجَعَلْنَا الْأَرْضَ مَيْهَادَ وَجِبَالْ أَوْتَادَ This you find in, in um, um, 
in both the Su some of the Su some of the Sufi tafsir and uh, some of the tafsir that are more influenced by Mu'tazili orientations, that they they read a Jibal Autad metaphorically to affirm another moral principle. I said the Jabal Autad that there are an ethical core and an Ard al-Mihad, which is the, the, the ethical core without which enjoying the pleasures of existence becomes disastrous. And you remember I said that. But the, the part that just in, in that you find in the literature that is worth no, noting, although it's not a very, I mean, not uh, a majority or not even a, a significant minority, but it's, um, is that uh, a Jibara Autada is a metaphor for um, the existence of what in the Sufi literature calls, uh, they call Aqtab. Um, it, that earth itself with all, or, or again, earth here being a metaphor for the pleasures of life, without there being in existence beings who are like the mountains, uh, who represent and affirm the ethical message of Allah. <coughs> These individuals, they anchor humanity in the truth. Without these individuals, that's when the truth becomes very unstable. So the, this, the, the imagery, whether they are described as, as aqtab or they're described as khawas, or described as asfiya, or they're described in some of the literature as al-hukama, that the stability of society is in a core group that is anchored in goodness, or anchored in knowledge, or anchored in wisdom, um, that's one of the, the, the things that you read in um, the literature as well. Okay, now I've covered everything, alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah, that was amazing and really um, striking that um, so much of what we covered in this short story was actually directly relevant to, um, for example, the convert experience, what um, Elaine was saying about truth and falsehood, um, and you know, it, it's. I always feel so grateful when what you know we're learning and hearing in the halakas also you know is directly relevant to what we're experiencing in life. So this is going to be good good food for conversation at dinner, inshallah. <laughs> but this was an amazing surah. Thank you so much. And should we take a break um, for maghrib, and then we can um, you know please send your questions through the chat, and inshallah, we'll be back in a little bit. Okay, bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Um, I just want to say again that, you know, it's it's really uh, stunning when the surah um, 
just, I think, touches on exactly what we have been talking about here. And, um, and I think the theme, of actually, um, I want to say, I want it for converts, because Alhamdulillah, you know, Elaine has been a convert for 30 years, me 27. Joe gave the introduction last week, um, convert for six years. It, you know, what, and I think that um, what is so striking is when, when we share these convert experiences and we talk about how we come to Islam through, um, you know, through knowledge. I mean, there's so much you have to battle and fight and study and learn and overcome um, in your own life experience to sort of um, unwedge you from what you thought you believed or knew to sort of choose um, a new faith. And, um, and then, you know, I've found, I mean, you, we come through questions, asking lots of questions, why this, why that, you know, and then even asking Muslims once we, you know, come to the mosque, well, why do you believe this and why is this important and why do you have to cover and why do you have to, you know, do all of the millions of things. Um, <clears throat> and so there's an expectation. I think it's, there's an excitement, you know, when you actually discover something that you really believe in and then it's, it's such a stark, like, contrast when you enter a space and you're not allowed to ask questions and people actually, you know, don't appreciate your um, enthusiasm and your desire to learn. Um, and I, I feel like when you present, um, well, first I wanted to say, like, the seven levels that you talk about, you know, going from opening your heart to, you know, thinking about, okay, recognizing that, yes, this is Islam, and then falling in love, you know, and then the whole progression, that is exactly like a convert's journey. And I think that that is what is so beautiful. Um, and what I imagine every Muslim should go through, I've always been such a huge advocate for everyone, heritage or non-heritage, to go through the conversion process exactly for that reason, because I feel like you have to discover um, you know, on your own, the beauty of this faith, and come to love it, and be you know convinced, um, and then you know grow through those stages, um, and so it's really beautiful to to hear that, but also it's striking that okay, this didn't come from the traditional tafsir approach, it came from the Sufi approach, mm -hmm. and then to even go beyond that with Project Illumin, it's not just the traditional, and it's not just the Sufi, it's that all, both of those plus an incredible broad expanse of learning and you know reading that you've done in your lifetime and prayer and all of this, it underscores to me, again, the, just the importance of a true scholar. Because you go to the mosque and from what you hear, there's one version. There's no traditional Sufi-esque or anything else. There's one version of the truth. And um, because they're not scholars, you know? And so it, it's, it's like, um, it's just like night and day, and so I think the more we have these sessions, um, I'm just so grateful, honestly. This is, it, it is like living, breathing, and, you know, being given permission to be alive and to be a human in the most beautiful, vibrant sense of the word, and I feel like the only place we're really getting that permission is here, and so thank you for that. Um, and just, you know, so people know, like Asuli, we have a 100,000 book library here, you know, and this library, you know, was hand-selected, certainly by the sheikh, but this is the fruit of that knowledge, 
and it, you know, it's like we've lost that respect and, and appreciation um, for knowledge um, and, and, and the Quran. I mean, all of it's so tragic, but alhamdulillah, the fact that it exists, like Joe said in his introduction, the fact that one person still can speak, you know, and present this and provide hope means that there's still hope for the future. So um, all of this just to say thank you. And Elaine, amazingly, told me, okay, no coincidences, right? Um, for all the things that we covered in the surah that were relevant to her situation, she said that this was the very first surah that she learned as a convert. Wow. Wow. <laughs> oh, subhanAllah. SubhanAllah. Okay. So, because I, I, I said to her, I think this surah was for you today. And, you know, it comes through prayer, right? So, Sheikh prays on which surah we should cover. And Elaine is here, so I, I, no coincidences in my mind. So alhamdulillah. Subhanallah. Okay. Well, yeah. <laughs> That's why. <it> was. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Does anybody have a question to start us off? Come on. I mean, yeah. Just. Uh, um, Reiterate, Grace, that I think you took a very. I mean, I, I never. I mean, I never thought something that could be so exciting, and I'm like kind of just bursting with <laughs> ideas. You know, just you, you memorize this first thing, and then, but subhanAllah, anyways. Um, so I, as I was uh, talking with you during the break. Um, you, in the beginning of the halaqa, you asked, like, okay, let's think about the context that this is being revealed in. Why at this moment is something, is this being discussed when it seems like it's apparent, obvious, it's one of the early types of, uh, you know, beliefs that Muslims should already be familiar with. So why is it coming again? And, you know, just based off of all the, the chapters that we've covered so far, um, you kind of read this with new eyes, um, uh, real, like noticing all of these things that really tie into the messages that you've discussed before. I mean, so, I mean, just to begin with, it says, you know, the, the context is, okay, what, what are they asking one another about? Um, like it's almost as if this whole chapter is saying you guys are so interested in these in the metaphysical nature of resurrection is it body is it soul etc in reality none of that matters it's about the moral significance of accountability and that it, because it doesn't even like it's like okay you're gonna see what this is actually about and then it talks, it's, it's interesting um, What I thought when reading this verse, it's, it's sort of saying like I mean, can it be read as saying We've created you as social animals That, you know, you're not solitary individuals But you have to think of yourself as a social animal And it's, it's almost weaving in 
a normative aspect to this by, by saying Azwaja, it's saying that your role as a social animal is not only the individual vis-a-vis -vis an abstract society, but vis-a-vis -vis every single individual in that society. It's, it's like sort of setting like a moral basis for social thought. Um, and then it talks about, you know, man, like the human being's social role in this creation the, and like, but then the, it talks about all the things Allah has created and you know what are you going to do essentially with your role on earth and then the miqat that there's going to be an appointment where you're going to be judged basically for what you did on earth the first thing that's mentioned is tuqyan uh, uh, you know not like like, like uh, injustice, oppression, I mean all of the sort of things that we talk about in the previous stories about building a just society it's charging or reminding again the Muslims that you know in Medina focusing on these sort of broad societal goals um, and then uh, when it talks about accountability um, you know that there's not going to be like in the day of judgment, but also like a teaching for now, like there's no such thing as like privilege, you know, in terms of like who is going to be treated fairly, etc. And as you said, like a reminder that mercy is about, I mean, one of the aspects of mercy is justice, you know. So I, I mean, because you didn't answer this, uh, you know, explicitly. You know, like if you could sort of say a few words about the the role that Surah Naba has in, you know, it's not just about the you know early Meccan types of beliefs, but also a reminder for the just society that Muslims are supposed to establish. Sorry, that was so long. Ago. No, so what Rami is pointing out is that Surah Naba actually is. Uh, I mean, if I if I can paraphrase, uh, that it is, it might superficially appear like an early Meccan surah, but in fact, it affirms, um, it affirms the messages that preceded it in the surah that we've studied. From you know Yusuf and and Am and uh, and Kaf and so on, and um, uh, the part about uh, one of the things that Rami said that I really like is that when it starts out by saying what is what is it that they they, they are they're discussing what is it that they're debating about, and uh, it's saying. Uh, uh, it's you know it is not about the metaphysics. It is not about these these you know it, it you will come to know you will come to know the truth of of it all, and the truth of it of it all is accountability and that you cannot escape. So which which affirms. 
everything that has been, it, it is not the fanciful theoretical constructs, it is not, uh, you know, intelligent rhetorical devices, it is not, you know, abstract conceptualizations of things, but the bottom line is, is that whether you're going to meet Allah in body and soul, or the body is the body the way it looks on this earth, or whether it, it, it looks completely different, or whatever it is, uh, it, none of that is material. What is material is that there is an appointed time, and the appointed time, although you imagine that it's far away, that it is in fact imminent, as imminent as the point in which you die. Because once you die, your, your sense of time ends, and the next time you are aware of things fully, it, it, is, it is accountability. So, so that's one. The other thing, the that's actually a really intelligent observation, that you are social animals because that's, that dovetails into everything that has led up to the surah, is that um, morality and ethics, ethics is not about uh, abstract constructs. It is not about being able to sit and give a very, a very learned uh, discussion about what husn is or ihsan is or it is about applied ethics. It is how you, in fact, practice it vis-a-vis -vis others. Um, so I like that very much because it, it, it makes perfect sense. is that you, you're not singular animals. You cannot, regardless of how much you abstract ethics, if it if it doesn't turn into virtual ethics, into applied ethics, into ethics that manifests in your social dynamics. And I think Rami is also right in saying that the first thing it says, that uh, the first thing it, it points out as um, the, the, the basis for damnation, which all the previous source affirmed, that Anturian is injustice and oppression. And so ultimately, whatever that you, you, you know, in, in rephrase it, uh, it's not, you might perfect your prayers, you might perfect your fasting, you might uh, put on pietistic affectations, all you want, but if ultimately what you do is turiyan, you're in trouble. And, and that is affirmed by everything we've learned so far. Uh, if ultimately you don't treat people fairly and decently, uh, nothing, none of the rituals are going to avail you. Um, 
So yeah, so I actually I agree with Rami. And in fact, what Rami said um, convinces me that it is, it convinces me that Surat al-Naba, in fact, is a very powerful summary, but beyond the just a powerful summary, it, it comes in and, and nips in the bud the, the thing that we see have, that took place among uh, the rabbinic class, among the priestly class in Christianity, uh, where doctrine becomes the, the basis from which doctrine and belief, not actual practice and applied ethics, the doctrine and belief becomes the basis for salvation. And correct belief becomes the basis for salvation, not correct action and correct practice. And correct practice does not mean orthopraxy, as Orientalists say, is, or as, and as Muslims who've been colonized say, uh, like Wahhabis, who were entirely a colonial product, uh, that it is, you know, where you put your hands in prayer, whether you cover your feet in, in prayer or, or not, but it is your, the, the moral, ethical outcome of your living example. How you impact other human beings and how you impact the self as well. So I think everything you said is, is right on. And Surat al-Naba is then, then, and in fact, it allows me to see um, something that will be affirmed in Surat al-Mutafifin, which we haven't covered yet. But Surat al-Mutafifin comes at the very, very, very end of the Meccan period. And it does, yeah, well, inshallah, when we get there, but it does the same thing. It, it, it affirms that, I, that, that, that principle of it is not about abstractions, and it is not about theoretical constructs or a correct doctrinal belief if it doesn't ultimately lead to complete applied ethics. Uh, yeah, very good. That's <clears throat> this actually reminds me of conversation we were having this morning. I don't know if you want to repeat this or if you remember when we were talking about the issue of law and how today people, Muslims, are so, um, there, there are two types. One which is like everything is about law and the other type is that it's about morality and action and yeah, what Grace is referring to, I don't remember how we got into this conversation. A lot of times I just start ranting about something. But, <laughs> uh, so I'm sure it was one of those. But um, law could become very corrupting. Um, law could become the refuge of the petty-minded, the unintelligent, uh, the unethical, the myopic, 
because law is ultimately reduces itself to a bunch of rules. All laws, if they are divine laws, unlike human laws, human laws uh, are it could be a product of uh, privilege and power. They could be a product of someone that just wanted, wanted, wants it to be so because they gain financially. But that construct in divine laws is, is, is God doesn't decree, decree laws uh, to achieve some type of advantage for God's self. God doesn't decree a law to privilege some group over others. The very idea of divine law is that it is all laws are supposed to be for a moral purpose, for an ethical purpose. But this is a challenge, right? Because then law ha gives the comfort of law is that it's positivistic, it's resolute, it's do and do not. And it's very easy to start dealing with, div with divine law like we deal with human law, that we just follow the rules and forget or ignore what the rules were there, what the objective of the rules were in the first place, what the purpose of these rules were. And the most dangerous things about Muslim obsession with law is that the the uh, it's like um, it's you know um, what I've observed about what in this society they call potheads you know the people who smoke too much marijuana uh, they have a false sense of achievement they 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 think they're achieving things in life and in fact quite often they're just stuck where they are uh, law creates sort of potheads but in an ethical way um, they they think that they're being good because they're preoccupied with all the technicalities. But it could become very easily the refuge of small minds. Um, you know, the whole thing becomes whether we are doing this correctly or incorrectly, but the ethical principles become something so forgotten that no one remembers anymore and no one even talks about it anymore. And what you notice, what I was taught telling Grace is that in, in the Muslim community, you notice that the, it's even the worst thing is that we're all, all Muslims, not all, they're Muslims who don't care, you know, about anything. Uh, they're, they're nominally, if they're Muslim at all. But uh, there are all too many lawyers in the, among Islamic communities. So many Muslims approach their religion like lawyers. But even worse, they're not trained as lawyers. So it creates absolute disaster. You know, at least if they're trained as lawyers, they might, you know, handle the technicalities well. But you're not even trained as a lawyer, but you have the, the framework, the, 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 the mindset of a lawyer. 
so it, it, it's like when you go to a really bad attorney, you know, who just gives you really bad advice and messes up your life. Um, that's often the way I see our dear Muslim community, uh, a bunch of incompetent lawyers. Um, yes. And, you know, interestingly, from, a, from the perspective of a convert, you know, I think it's probably fair to say that what was really appealing from, um, you know, not knowing anything about the Islamic, you know, not having any background, what was appealing was the ethics and, you know, the message and the divine, you know, beauty of, like, the fairness, the mercy, you know, all of the stuff that we talk about. And it's not until you actually become Muslim and you start interacting with Muslims that you realize or you feel like, oh, we're supposed to be skilled in law. Because what people, you know, throw at us is, oh, halal, haram, because Islamic law says this, Islamic law says that. And then pretty soon, you know, because you don't know any better, you think that, oh, this is, this is how it operates. But, you know, it just struck me, like, really, the appeal from the beginning is exactly the ethics and the morality. And then it gets completely lost once you become Muslim. So, of note. Did anybody else have any questions? Okay. Um, it's interesting that, in, in light of what I'm about to say, that the, the study Quran translates that verse as bucks and maidens, and, um, <laughs> and I'm sure a lot of the interpreters are much more, are, are better read than me and more pious than me, so I, I, I say that with, I critique that with humility, because it, um, the idea that, that heaven is, is something that is there to just fulfill your desires or, or to serve your desires has never really sat well with me. Um, not, not even in, in, a, in a moral sense, but it just didn't make sense to me because I've personally gone through different phases in my life where a long time ago, the things that I used to want, or the things I used to take enjoyment from, are not the same things I take enjoyment from now. So my desires have changed based on my spiritual state. Mm -hmm. And so whenever I read these these verses, um, whenever I especially come to the verses on heaven or hell, that's what I think of is that it, it's 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 describing a place, but then it's also describing like a state of being, mm -hmm. and. So then the verse after that, or two after that, 35 says, they, they hear there neither, neither idle talk nor lying. Um, and so I, I just, I wanted to see what you had to comment on, th because there's some, there, there's, and I don't, there's some people that take immense enjoyment from idle talk. Maybe not so much lying, but take enjoyment from rumors, take enjoyment from gossip. And even maybe not even just enjoyment but venting or take comfort in and the idea and i'm wondering is this is this a basis or evidence for the fact that your desires actually will change nature because someone might be very good in action might do enough to get into heaven but will their state change where they won't even desire certain behaviors like idle talk or like lying once they get to heaven 
Yeah, you you hit upon um, those who who scoffed at the idea that Kawaiba Atraba refers to uh, female body parts. Um, exactly point out to the, to the the fact that if if you are if the state of your nature is that you desire, uh, you know, bucks and maidens, as uh, uh, then what's the significance of saying that you are not going to hear um, idle talk or nonsensical talk or lies? Because it's the the very same people that would love to drink wine, uh, overflowing wine, and have plenty of sex. Uh, are the same type of people that um, are not going to be attracted by the fact that truth is spoken and that no one engages in idle talk. The 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 nature of the psychology is it likes to distract itself with all types of pleasures and pleasures are not just intoxication or well at least they say that the wine in heaven doesn't intoxicate but then what's the point of drinking it I don't know because I mean I've never tasted wine but I'm you know I would imagine there are things that taste better. I mean, people probably drink it for the buzz, right? <laughs> it tastes good. It tastes very good. <laughs> okay. Joe says it tastes very good. So I'll take his word for it. <laughs> so I guess they'll, they'll drink wine for the taste. And okay, and Bucks and Maidams are also probably very desirable. And, uh, but I don't get, so why isn't lying, I, mean, I, I would still define lying desirable, I don't talk desirable. So anyway, the, 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 that, that's exactly the point that makes a lot of the, is, uh, you know, when you, when you read people like Ibn Arabi and the way they, the, his Futuhat and the way he approaches this, or even Jilani, you know, or Ismail Haqqi or the, um, uh, to study and, and others, they, they say the fact that this is a plane where truth and um, understanding of truth is always pointed out by Allah as a highest attainment that that in itself then confronts us with the fact that a lot of material consumptions inherent in the enjoyment of material consumption is an element of untruth. And what they mean by this is that the reason that you are able to enjoy uh, 
the taste of something and think it is is that it's a chemical reaction that has nothing to do with the truth of things. Sex is similarly like that. Is that sex without a higher spiritual state, without love and, and, and a higher spiritual state. It is, again, it is a group of fetishes in the wiring of the brain that tells you that this is desirable or this is not desirable. Uh, so, you know, why do men find buxom desirable as opposed to whatever the opposite of buxom is? It, it, it is an element of a lie. It is an element of deception. And if the akhirah is the place of truth, then that negates the idea that pleasures are purely physical. Then you might actually see the true nature of wine not as a tasty thing, but as rotted grapes, I guess. Is that the true nature of wine? Uh, don't they rot grapes or something like that? Yeah. Um, you know, or can, if you see the truth of buxom, of buximity, <laughs> buxomness, <laughs> I think it would be rather disturbing because it's like what, what, what breasts are made of, uh, you know, beyond the surface, it's, uh, you know, weird stuff. Um, <laughs> So, yes, now, typically the answer of tra the, the traditionalists who insist on material pleasures, they say, well, Allah will take away the element of boredom. So you can enjoy the same material thing without ever getting bored. Uh, the best response I've read to that uh, was, again, in Futuhat, was, well, then you become like an animal, uh, because if you you know, you're given the same food every day and you eat it with relish every time. It's like what animals do. And it is not dignifying to turn human beings into animals. And this is part of the long philosophical discussion that gets people like Ibn Arabi to say it is only enlightenment and and it's a dynamic where you elevate in enlightenment uh, I mean we, we we usually don't we jump over the philosophical long philosophical debates with traditionalists that led people like Ibn Arabi or Hallaj in, in, in at least in some of his poems to or Ibn al-Farid um, to, to say, wait, this, the, the, the way traditionalists are approaching this doesn't make any sense. Um, but that's precisely the, the thought process. I mean, it's a, it's a, and we, again, we are all the poorer for not being aware of this discursive tradition. 
because there were our, you know, we don't build upon what our forefathers debated and argued, so maybe we can make original contributions. Uh, we've even lost where they stopped. Uh, and, you know, so you're constantly reinventing the wheel. Um, and and that, that's exactly what it means to, 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 to waste a tradition, because it, it, a tradition is not, never all good or all bad. Um, a tradition is discursive and complicated. And, you know, people make several steps forward and other people make some steps backwards. And reading in a tradition means to engage it analytically and actively. And to say, this is something I can build on, this is something I can't build on. This is something that deserves to be rehabilitated. And accepting that you could be wrong, because someone else could read the same text that you read, and you thought, oh, there's nothing there. And that person would come and see things that you completely missed. And that's what makes the Islamic tradition exciting. If only, instead of Orientalists being the ones who are constantly plow through it, it would be Muslims. If only. Okay, I have a question from Rizwan in the interactive group. Um, in reference to how the acts of the unjust reverberate generationally, are the subsequent generations that are affected by one's unjust act um, and perhaps wander astray as a result, absolved from accountability of their own behavior? And how does one reconcile that injustice committed from a previous generation to their own contemporary circumstance? They're not absolved, um, but Allah is just. And, you know, we human beings, when we struggle with justice, we, we struggle with a lot of concepts, like the difference between direct causation and proximate causation. Proximate causation more or less means foreseeable causation. Um, we, we talk about mitigating factors, that factors that mitigate accountability or liability or culpability. You know, we, we have an imperfect language to think about a, a concept that is truly requires divinity to achieve because it is, justice is a concept that is too grand for all the human minds put together. So what Allah tells us clearly in the Quran, if you remember when we've talked in the past, when Allah confronts those who've been led astray and then they point to those who had led them astray and say, Allah, you know, gives them double the punishment because they led us astray and then uh, and Allah responds, that both of you deserve double the punishment. Uh, because those who be, but, but we temper that with the idea that our only perfect justice is achievable by the divine. Now, what, how that perfect justice will take account mitigating factors, the circumstances that people are born into, 
no one can convince me, for instance, that Allah is going to judge someone that is born into abuse in the same way that Allah will judge someone that is born into privilege and everything is going wonderful for them. Someone that is born into complete lack of opportunity or even, even beyond that. I used to know a professor who passed away at UCLA who is a, health of, a professor of public health. And in the, 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 the years of where we became friends, I learned from him how malnutrition affects the thinking of the, the malnutrition affects the development of the intellect. I, I didn't realize that the way that people receive nutrition early on in life affects how intelligent, how perceptive, how, um, and that must enter into justice. You know, someone who has received, you know, someone whose brain is working the way it's supposed to work perfectly can't be evaluated like someone whose brain is um, maldeveloped because it, it, that person didn't receive the nutrition. But believe, trusting in Allah's perfect justice doesn't absolve us from trying to approximate justice to the extent we can. Our job is to search diligently and without pause for anything that brings us closer to the ideal of justice and to develop whether conceptually or empirically anything that can bring us so if we become aware that nutrition affects the behavior of people because it affects their ability to understand and comprehend, then that also has an effect on how our accountability is going to work out. Because if if a ruler of, a, of like a ruler of a lot of Muslim countries, unfortunately, you know, they, they, they know that the fact that their, their people are not receiving proper nutrition, and as a result, they grow up underachievers, they can't invent medicine, they can't do research, they can't think creatively because they were not provided with the tools. That, in turn, will define their accountability. So, believe in Allah's perfect justice, but our obligation is to, without pause, search for every way that we can maximize so that when we appear before Allah, Allah holds us accountable ultimately for the search for justice. The, you know, that Allah says, I know you've done best efforts to try to achieve justice, even if justice on this earth, perfect justice is not achievable. And, and that's, again, subhanAllah, I mean, even that, 
so many of the texts of Usul al-Fiqh start out with a discussion exactly on, but how many of the people that you've heard lectures on Usul al-Fiqh, again, like technocrats, like bad lawyers, they will go and love to talk about the rules for Qiyas, the rules for Ijma', the rules for Istislah, the difference between Istislah and Istisham. But they will skip over the entire discussion that about that you find in books on usul al-fiqh about the nature of justice, the relation of ma'rifah to justice, the the obligation, the whole thing that I talked about in speaking in God's name between the mukhattiya and the musawwiba. I mean, even after I wrote about the mukhattiya and musawwiba. I found that most Muslims just ignored this entire thing because they didn't understand the significance. They just, you know, whether there is a correct answer or not, whether whether ultimately there's even a correct answer in our search for justice, um, or is it that Allah just want the correct answer is to search, is the search itself. Um, when you compare modern Muslims who completely fail to understand the significance of a debate like this to pre-modern Muslims who understood whether you start out with the premise that to every legal, every moral question there is a correct answer or whether the correct answer is just simply the search for the correct answer and they understood that that makes a big, big difference in the way you approach moral problems. Yeah, anyway. Um, I think I forgot to ask if there's a vicar. No. The no, whole thing, no, right? No. Okay. So, and I'm sorry, I didn't take last call before I jumped on interactive. So are there any more questions in this group? Okay. So I think actually, the truth is, I think we're out of time. Um, and I just... Elaine, did you have any questions? This is your surah. <laughs> Not to put it on the spot, but anyway. Um, thank Does you. Does Elaine have any questions? Do you have any questions you'd like to ask? You could ask me afterwards as well. Okay. Thank you so much for being with us. This is an incredible surah. I mean, there's still actually there's so much that beauty that was in here. No, yeah. no. Just tell me first way. Oh, okay. Um, and uh, so we, inshallah, will see you guys on Saturday. Um, Mafaz, please wait so we can connect for a second. Um, thank you so much, and um, inshallah, we um, look forward to another amazing session after this. Thank you. Assalamu alaikum. Assalamu alaikum, everybody. <laughs>